Uh, well, uh, extremely special guest here today. Uh, first time we've had a, uh, a a filmmaker, an active filmmaker on on a podcast. So very excited to talk to Curtis Spieler. Uh, in addition to having a job at Vinegar Syndrome, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, uh, he's also uh, getting a lot of attention and acclaim for his role in uh, in kind of redirecting New York Ninja. So Curtis, thank you so much for making some time here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I think maybe maybe it's kind of a fun place to start. There's there's a couple of different things I really want to do as like a foundation to this, but uh, I, I've never seen the term redirector before. And as I started doing some research, I saw that name kind of pop up in a lot of the articles and reviews and, and interviews and stuff. So I, I thought that was kind of fun. If you want to give just a few, you know, a little bit of background as to the redirector credit. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure I might be the only person to actually have that credit. I, I'm not 100% on that. I'd, I'd have to check, but I'm pretty sure I'm the only one. Well, I, I guess for the listeners who don't know, um, New York Ninja was a movie that was originally shot in 1984. And due to like production issues and budgetary problems, the movie was never finished and was subsequently abandoned. Fast forward about 35 years later, and I am working for the wonderful company Vinegar Syndrome, and I find out that we have the unedited camera rolls in our film archive. Um, the only problem is, is all the uh, sound elements were missing. So basically, we had unedited picture for an unfinished movie <laughs> and uh, with no sound. Uh, so uh, after talking to the owners here, they gave me the green light to uh, essentially reassemble the film. And uh, I, I basically had to write a new script for it. We brought in some genre actors to dub the voices. We brought in uh, an awesome band called Voyager 3 to do a new score. Um, a company named 3Beep, which we'll get into, I'm sure did uh, a lot of the uh, sound work on the film. And essentially, we created the best version that we could of the movie. Um, at the end of the day, you know, how do you how do you credit yourself for that? I mean, I wasn't on the original production. Um, I didn't actually shoot any of the footage, but uh, I carried the whole project across the finish line, and I did make a lot of creative choices to uh, get the movie finished. So, uh, when trying to figure out how we were gonna credit me for this I guess redirector was <laughs> I guess the, the best term that we could come up with uh because that's that's essentially what I did I, I took it in a slightly different direction and uh carried the ball across the finish line so to speak well I mean that's the crazy thing about this project is maybe you took it in a slightly different direction it's not entirely like you know <laughs> it's not entirely sure I mean there's a good chance you did but like it's also it feels really authentic to something that would have come out around that time yeah, well, we, we tried to stay as true to what we suspected the original version of the film to be. So, you yeah. know, we were trying to be as respectful to the, to the material. And anybody who's seen the movie knows that, like, you know, we didn't really add any humor. Any of the humor that's in the film was essentially inherent to the film itself. Um, we basically played it straight. And uh, so the campiness, the silliness, all that just kind of comes through organically. So, you know, we try to be as respectful, but there were, you know, creative choices that had to be made, not just in the edit, but, you know, throughout the whole process. So, which I'm sure we'll get into more as we go along. Yeah, oh, for sure. I, anytime you have a ninja rollerblading to a fight, I feel like the humor's there. You just need to kind of like play it straight. I feel, I feel like that's the right choice. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's something we debated a lot. So for people who have seen it, yeah, like there's a lot of campiness to the film. And uh, 
you know, as I was going through the footage and was seeing what was there, you know, initially I thought I was probably going to have to make this thing more interesting because we hadn't seen the footage. When we went into this whole process, we hadn't seen anything yet. We just knew that we had this unfinished movie in our film archive. Mm -hmm. And I assumed it was unfinished maybe because it wasn't that good or maybe it was boring. And so I didn't know what I was going to have to do to maybe like amp it up and make it more interesting. But man, I'll tell you, once we got into the footage, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, every scene is entertaining and it's so really the best thing to do at that point was to play it straight and let whatever campiness or whatever just come through naturally. And uh, I think that's what we resonated with when they watch yeah oh, yeah i i certainly loved it and have seen most of the special features on the disc which is quite extensive it goes into the background of the film because i became a little obsessed with it after i saw it but really quickly before we dive in i want to go back just a little bit so i will kind of like put a time like pause in there and then go backwards in time just a little bit and then we can pick it up from here momentarily so this came around because vinegar syndrome made a decision a few years back to acquire some films from a company that's now defunct called 21st century distribution. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And that catalog has like a bunch of black exploitation movies and it's got a bunch of, I think there's some movies that y'all have even put out on a VSA, if I'm not wrong. Um, and it has some stuff like terminal Island, I think was part of that. I mean, it's got a lot of the titles that are now out on vinegar syndrome are kind of coming from that acquisition. Right. Yeah. Like uh, red mob, and um, like the executioner part two, those yeah. are like two that come come to mind. Um, yeah, we've put out a number of their films. Okay, and so there, y'all, the the films were now in your archive. And and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but we spoke to Justin Liberty a few months back. Um, so we were super excited to kind of have a little bit more of the Vinegar Syndrome family here uh, uh, on the on the podcast. But anyways, so so y'all y'all have those rights now, and then. Did you know about New York Ninja uh, already and you were just excited it was in there? Or like, like kind of, how did you single that one out and be like, oh, no way, this is here, you know? So it was technically acquired before I started with the company. I've been here for about four years now. Yeah. And um, so the story that I heard is that when we acquired this group of films from 21st Century Distribution, um, one of the owners here, Ralph Stevens, went to uh, basically go pick up all the film so we could bring it here to our film archive. And when they were going through um, the, the list of uh, like elements that, that we were picking up, um, they saw this title, New York Ninja, and uh, Arthur Schweitzer, who used to work for 21st Century Distribution, he, he was the one who we purchased this, this group of films from. Um, he had the rights to them still. Uh, I guess Ralph said to Arthur, you know, what's this movie, New York Ninja? Like, we, we didn't really ask for this. And he uh -huh. said, well, it's, it's this movie that we shot in the 80s and we never finished it. You can, you know, keep the footage, get rid of it, do whatever you want. Um, but luckily, luckily vinegar syndrome didn't get rid of it. Um, and it, it went in our film archive and, uh, nobody had seen any at this point, uh, seen any of the footage. And so, um, you know, they were trying to basically figure out what to do with it. And then I started working there and I found out about it, like basically my first day of work. Um, I happen, I happened to be in the film archive and, uh, Brandon Upson, who's basically, uh, he's like our resident film scanner and one of our restoration artists. He, um, 
he's the one who was like showing me around the film archive and there's these boxes labeled New York Ninja. And Brandon was telling me that, you know, to his knowledge, it was this unfinished Ninja movie. And uh, I was like, Oh, well, that's exciting. I would, you know, be interested in maybe editing that back together, uh-huh. come to find out all the sound elements were missing. Uh-huh. And so that's when I was like, well, that's going to be a big process. So I just kind of let it go after that. And uh-huh. after I was working for the company for about a year or so, is when all of a sudden I kind of, you know, once I was feeling more comfortable here and I was working on some of my own projects, I decided, you know, maybe there's something that could be done with this. So I went to the owners and I was like, hey, what if you guys let me uh, kind of take a look at this? If it's worth finishing, maybe we can bring in some, you know, genre actors to dub the voices and stuff. And they loved the idea. And so we went from there. Wow. And, and just for the, cause that's the second time uh, the genre actors have come up and I, maybe that's a great segue into who they are because it's so, it just puts a huge smile on my face. So I'm just going to rattle off a couple of names really quick. You know, Don, the dragon Wilson, Michael Berryman, Leanna Quigley, Leon Isaac Kennedy, Cynthia Rothrock, uh, Ginger Lynn. Uh, I feel like I'm not, I feel like I'm missing some big ones, but it's just like, you know, it, it's just this incredible list of talent of people that were making movies in the 80s uh, and 90s in, in a big way uh, and have had a relationship with Vinegar Syndrome uh, through a lot of them through Vinegar Syndrome archive line. Uh, I think, to be honest, although I'm sure I'm sure there's some some cross there between the two different lines. Um, is that relationship with them just very friendly by nature because of all the different kind of interviews and, you know, behind the scenes features and all that stuff? Is it a pretty established relationship at this point? Uh, yeah, for the most part. So when we, um, when I presented this idea to the owners, like we knew right away that if we were going to cast, cast genre actors to do the voices, we wanted to cast people that had been in other movies that Vinegar Syndrome has released. So okay. That was planned from the very beginning. Who we were going to use was debatable, but um, that's when we kind of started going through, you know, our own releases to see, hey, who would work for this voice? You know, um, Linnea Quigley was pretty much like one of the ones that we we're definitely going to use because I think we've put out um, probably more of her movies than maybe anybody else. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. But you would mention our our VSA line, um, Vinegar Syndrome Archive. Um, we started doing more action stuff through that line. It's just kind of something that naturally happened. And um, that's when we ended up acquiring films from like Cynthia Rothrock and Don the Dragon Wilson. Um, Vince Murdaco was another one. Um, so they sort of kind of ended up in that line just because that's kind of naturally become our action line. It's not necessarily all the action. It's, it's a little hard to explain, but for the short answer that's a lot of our action movies end up on vsa and so yeah. yeah we we started casting but it was all just planned to be around vinegar syndrome uh people and so yeah we we had connections to some of them um you know so it was easy to kind of contact them um but like cynthia rothrock and don the dragon were like kind of new to the group so we didn't have necessarily an established relationship with them at the time but um it's grown over the over the the releases and obviously over new york ninja so that's great yeah i don't i don't mean to go too far down the vsa line but i was joking with a uh somebody I was on the line with the other day talking about how I think y'all have released all of Jalal Mary's films at this point <laughs> or, or nearly all of them at this point, which is great. Uh, yeah. I, I, all the ones I've seen so far. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. He's actually really great to work with. I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, he, he did a lot of like, yeah, low budget action movies in the nineties and man, are they fun? I, I really enjoy, I'm glad we're putting them out. Cause I, I enjoy them too. They're super fun. Um, uh, yeah. He's, he seems like anyways, like, like the commentaries and stuff, he seems like a pretty down to earth, normal guy, which is cool. Um, so, uh, okay. So then the other piece of this is, I guess, obviously you. So you joined Vinegar Syndrome four years ago and are primarily uh, like involved in sort of like an editing role. Like, right, is that right? Is that kind of a big role part of what you do for them? Yeah. So when I first started, I started as a restoration artist and editing uh, special features. Um, as time has gone on, um, our schedule has gotten increasingly uh more full yeah. and so keeping up with the special features we actually outsource a lot of them to different editors now so i don't i don't do as many special features as i used to but that's basically at least the first year here i was basically doing all editing for special features and uh restoration um now i've moved on and still doing restoration but doing a lot of other things such as new york ninja so what when you were actually in in the thick of it like what percentage of your year was spent making this like was it like 50 percent, 80 percent? like how much of your time was focused on this well it's, it's actually kind of interesting because um because we're such a busy company and we're sort of like a very diy company so yeah. everybody here kind of wears a lot of hats um i actually couldn't work on new york ninja during my work hours um, oh, okay yeah. So that was kind of like one of the deals from the very beginning. This is why, you know, one of the reasons why nobody was able to do anything with it is because um, we were just so busy and somebody had to basically take it under their wings and be willing to put in the work from the beginning. So yeah, actually I was working on it a lot on the weekends and at night, which is also one of the reasons why it took a lot of time to put the whole thing together. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, probably at least for the first six months working probably seven days a week, you know, Monday through Friday, uh, I was doing, you know, stuff for vinegar syndrome and then Saturday and Sunday I was in the building working on New York Ninja. So, yeah. I, I feel like that's a great segue. So, okay, now let's get into the movie a little bit. Um, you did an amazing job with this. Like, thank you. Like, I'm sure you've heard it a lot now. I, I just like, you know, I, I was thinking it was going to be a what's up tiger lily kind of experience when I heard what was going on and that would have been fine. Like that would have been okay. Like that's what's up tiger lily has its own sort of charm. Right. Uh, but it's not that like y'all, you know, you, I guess, primarily as well as I'm sure all the other folks that were involved, like, like you made an eighties action movie that's like dubbed. Right. And it, everything about it just feels uh, like, like you restored it and then put it out. It doesn't feel like it was made in 2021. Um, I was so impressed by that. Like that's so hard to do to kind of be like empathetic enough to put yourself in the mindset of this, this genre film basically that you're trying to recreate from, from raw, like, you know, uh, not audio files. What, I guess, what is it? Um, uh, footage or just raw footage, right. Without any sound. Um, can you just walk it all through that process of like sitting down with the footage, going through it from the mindset of sort of, you know, I guess storyboarding it or, or you know, kind of however that first process goes, and then thinking about the dialogue and like just any insight there would be amazing because the execution is really good. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, thank you. I appreciate that. And actually it's, it's, you know, I'll start off by saying it's really not because, you know, a lot of people have, 
complimented me and everybody who worked on the movie in terms of, um, you know, it feels like authentic to the time period, which is exactly what we were going for. I mean, as much as I love, you know, sort of getting a lot of credit for what I did, honestly, the best compliment is if people didn't know that we did anything to it, if people just yeah. assumed that we found it and just re-released it, like that would be, you know, that's great because that means we did our job, you know? So that's, that's basically what we set out to do from the very beginning. Um, yeah. In order to kind of explain how that came to be, I mean, it was definitely a process. So, you know, the, the short version is this is, you know, we scanned in all the footage and then, um, you know, I got basically uh, digital files of all of the footage. And so my first step was to basically just go through everything and see what we actually had um, because some of it was determining like what was actually finished with this movie um, were all the scenes shot. We had heard from Arthur early on that he believed that the ending was never finished. And so we needed to see kind of what was there. So really the, the, the first part of my job was just going through the footage, cataloging everything and seeing what was there. And really the only way to do that was going by the slate at the beginning of each shot. So I would go through... I would say, oh, I'd see the slate and say, okay, you know, scene 43. And I would get all the stuff that I could see that was from scene 43. And I would put it aside and, you know, have my own little bin for each scene. And then I would go through and start editing each scene just to get a feel for what was there and if I could make a completed scene out of it. So I kind of worked just in scenes. Um, in the meantime, while I was doing that, I was kind of getting a feel for the movie and at least getting an idea for either what, I thought the scene was about or what I thought I could make the scene about. Uh -huh. And, and, uh, but, you know, again, we were trying to stay as, you know, true to the, you know, quote unquote original version as possible. So um, when I laid everything out in a timeline in the order that the scenes were listed, uh, it made no sense. And it, it <laughs> makes even less sense than it does now. So um, I knew right away that, you know, in order to make this movie work, we were going to have to take some liberties with the footage that was there and kind of move scenes around and all that kind of thing. Um, so again, as I was going through, I was taking notes and I would, I would kind of get an idea of like, you know, maybe the order that the scenes would play. And then like, if I needed to move things around, what that scene could be, where could it go? And especially when it came to the dialogue scenes, you know, the, the easiest thing for me was to just edit it as um, smoothly as possible. Okay. So um, I didn't necessarily worry about like, hey, is this line supposed to come before this line? Because really, I didn't even know what they were saying. So I just wanted to edit the scene as smoothly as possible. So that's kind of really what I focused on first more than anything. And, uh, and then I, you know, once that was done, I, you know, like I said, I was moving things around and trying to basically get a story structure that I thought could work. And then after I had what I thought was like a, a nice solid edit, that's when I went in and started, um, you know, writing dialogue and kind of trying to match what was there. Some of the performances are really big and you can read the lips sometimes. Yeah. Um, so if I could read the lips, I try to keep what was there and then anything else, I would try to, you know, kind of match syllables, syllables the best I could and match the timing. Um, but some of it was really just, again, trying to, uh, basically like bridge the scenes, you know, make sense out of what was happening in that scene. And then, you know, make sense for the other scenes coming down the road, you know? Um, 
so yeah, that was, that was basically the process. So, you know, that was not, uh, something that I had really done before. Um, but because I was really the only one going through the footage, you know, I had the best feel for it. And then I was, you know, kind of determining, okay, this scene doesn't really work. Maybe we lose this one. This scene does work. Let's move it over here. Um, this doesn't make sense. You know, <laughs> let's, you know, move things around till it does make sense. And then, you know, the ending, um, was technically unfinished and we can kind of go into that. That's almost its own story in and of itself. But, uh, but yeah, um, anybody who's seen it, the helicopter scene is, is what I'm talking about. And, uh, that that's a whole conversation into itself. But anyway, that's basically the process that I went through in terms of like editing it and then writing the new dialogue. Wow. I, so I definitely want to hear about the ending, but one of the things that jumped out to me, what you just said was like, I think about all the stories about, you know, like Hitchcock's editor or all the stories about um, uh, these like auteurs that had this editor that was like right there with them through most of their career and how the editor is not as well known as the director. And uh, I'm not trying to get into like a big debate here, but the thing that really strikes me about what you just said is it's like, it's like this story is like the, the editors are having their day, right? Like, like this is the, this shows the creativity and the storytelling uh, that happens from the editor's uh, chair, right? Whereas I don't think that story is told as often. Yeah, no, I mean you're definitely right. That's why it's like really hard to kind of, you know, in in trying to determine what credit I should have, you know, it's really difficult because like basically more than anything, I'm the editor, you know. But you know, I made a lot of creative choices yeah. just to be able to tell the story but then you know the other creative choices were things in like the casting and the directing of the the voice actors and the music and all that kind of stuff but yeah i mean it it, you're right it really shows like how much editing really molds a film i mean you know i could only work with what was on what basically what was given to me you know i had no control over what was done on set so but I had to take that and kind of turn it into a movie. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that just kind of shows the power of editing. So uh, any directors out there, you know, either learn how to edit yourself or find a good editor and become tight with them because it's hugely important. I think a lot of famous sort of directors know that I just, and I think they, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that to your comment. I think just when I, when I read, like I did a deep dive into Fellini's films last year and like, as he spoke about the editor, it was always with a lot of love. And like, I think a lot of the ones that are sort of the, the names that we know, they all were able to find that. And so I think there's a lot, something to that, but um, anyways. Um, okay. So then you had, at this point, you have a story, you have dialogue and you have some actors cast. Um, we all know the importance of Foley art, sound design and music in a film as well. And so that's when you mentioned earlier, you mentioned it's, I believe it's three beep or beep three, right? Three beep. Three beep, as well as Voyager three. Um, Do you just, I'm curious if just like a, you know, quick background of kind of how you found them. Did you know them already? Had you worked with them before or like how, how was that process? Um, So yeah, three beep, their background is basically um, they would dub movies for, they would dub foreign films into uh, English and, or for the American market. And they also did animation. Um, Again, one of the owners here, Ralph Stevens, he knew the owner, Charles Darby. Um, I, I I don't know if he knew him from, you know, back in the day or or I'm not quite sure their relationship, but but he was familiar with three beep. And so um, 
he he's the one who got the ball rolling with them um i then worked with uh the um I guess you would say like they're the like the voiceover directors. Um, I worked with them because again, this isn't something that I had done. You know, I've made a few of my own low budget independent films, but I've never really had to tackle this level of like uh, uh, you know ADR basically is I yeah. guess what I would call it. Um, so like you know being able to hit that timing and you know working working with the actors for that kind of stuff was uh, you know something that I needed a little bit of help with and. Uh, I actually give a lot of credit to 3B Plus. They also um, were instrumental in the sound design. So like every footstep, every, you know, broken window or sound effect, punch, kick, whatever, that was all um, from 3B. And, uh, you know, when working with the guys who did the sound design, you know, we talked early on, like, how are we going to handle this? How is it going to sound? And really it was the same thing. It's like, you know, basically play it straight and try to make it sound like it came out of the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, that was really great because they got that. They, a lot of the guys, they're familiar with this type of work or they've been in the industry long enough that they know how things should sound for that time period. And um, they were hugely, uh, a huge help in all of that. So, the, you know, I give a lot of credit to 3B because without them, you know, the sound design wouldn't be what it is. Crazy. And then, uh, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm so glad we, we kind of, are talking about them then because it's a huge part of the movie um and then the soundtrack is great for this movie like it i mean the original lyrics like obviously a lot of original songs like it's great uh is this some people that you knew did you have tryouts or like how did that go for for that yeah so voyager 3 is the one who did uh the score and um so there's a lot of bands out there nowadays that are doing this sort of like synth rock kind of uh almost like creating um soundtracks for movies that don't exist they have this like very 80s kind of sound and there's a lot of the, these bands doing that and uh you know early on i just started kind of going through and listening to a, a bunch of bands like that trying to find out if we uh, if somebody had the right sound and then actually again brandon upson who works here at vinegar syndrome he had recommended um uh Voyager three. And I had heard of them. I had heard a little bit by them, but I wasn't really super familiar with them. So that night I ended up going home and downloading a bunch of their music and listening to it. And instantly I was like, Oh, I think these guys are the guys. So, um, they had, uh, Brandon had contact with them. So, um, he, he passed me their contact info. I reached out to Steve Green, who is basically the one who kind of, you know, he's, he's part of Voyager 3, but he kind of like manages them and, you know, handles all their, their uh, you know, um, I don't know, uh, a lot of the writing and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I, uh, I talked to him and he was like immediately on board because, you know, like I said, there's a lot of bands doing this kind of thing where they're like creating these like 80 soundtracks, but you, they actually got to create a soundtrack for an 80s movie for real, not just something that's like supposed to sound like an 80s soundtrack. Like it's, they basically were able to go back in time and create a soundtrack for an 80s movie, which is, you know, same thing for me. I was basically able to go back in time and make an 80s movie, which is something we could talk about later. But they were on board right away and they got it. You know, Voyager 3 just got it right from the start. And so, um, you know, we were doing all this remotely there, uh, in like the Detroit area. So I sent them a silent version of the movie that I had edited with, um, uh, my new, uh, script so they could kind of tell what was going on. Yeah. And they 
they did a score completely off of that. And I actually remember the first time he sent like the, the score back to me to like listen to for the first time. And I was very nervous because I knew the music was going to kind of like make or break the movie. And, and right away I was like, Oh man, this is like perfect. I was like so excited. So uh, it was really cool. Um, very little changed from that first version. Um, we might've moved some things around and changed a few things here or there, but like they nailed it right out of the gates. And, um, I, you know, I give them a huge amount of credit for what they did because they worked very hard and, uh, it came out great. I mean, even if you think about like, uh, Action USA, which is one of my favorite movies of all time or, um, Champagne and Bullets, which I'll also put out, mm. uh, you know, these are like, um, projects by insane people uh in a way i'm sure i mean with all respect like these projects are crazy uh and beautiful and they're you know this music wasn't like that and that it was more professional than those but it wasn't far away from that like it had the same spirit which i think is just is great like that's it's one of the hardest things to capture is how do you recreate something make it a good piece of music but also not make it sound like extremely polished because that's what not what that era was about. Right. 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 And, you know, and they did a lot of music, you know, if you watch a a lot of eighties movies, depending upon the budget, there's not that much music in them. Sometimes there would be like a theme that would repeat throughout. Um, But we had a lot of, uh, room we had to fill you know because even though we had a whole sound design done you know this was still a silent movie so we had to fill a lot of space you know and a lot of uh you know the score really helps with that it it helps you know transition scenes um helps make scenes make a little bit more sense all that kind of thing so anyway uh yeah they did they did an immense amount of work and I, you know, I, I give them a ton of credit because it's one of the things that people walk away from more than anything is going, wow, the music in that is awesome. So um, they nailed it. So kudos okay. to them. And, and yeah, no, totally kudos to them. That's they, they're, and it's, it's everything just kind of came together in such a, such a fun way, but you touched on something that I wanted to ask about. You kind of casually said, you know, I sent it to them remotely there in Detroit, but this was all done. Everything you've just said was done during COVID, right? Yes, yeah. So there was no physical connection, really, throughout the whole process, right? Correct, yeah, actually, so even with the voice actors, um, basically the way it worked, it was all done through remote sessions, which was both a blessing and, you know, obviously it was a curse in the sense that the pandemic hit and, you know, it was terrible because, you know, we early on, we were working on this before the pandemic hit. So it's like, okay, how, how are we going to handle this? And so the idea was to do the majority of our casting in New York and LA. And then I would go out to both those places. Like we would find, um, you know, studios out in both of those okay. places. And we'd, we would go out and, uh, you know, we could do all the, uh, you know, the voice recording in like a few days, you know? Um, and, uh, but then the pandemic hit and that all got shut down. And so for a while there, we were trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to handle this? But, um, as things started progressing, you know, a lot of these companies, um, a lot of these sound studios, they, they got, uh, really good at doing, um, remote sessions and it actually opened up more possibilities to us because now, um, once the studios started opening back up, um, what we could do is we weren't so much limited to like New York and LA now. 
different places. And all we had to do was find the closest studio to them. Um, so, you know, I think Michael Berryman was in Florida. Vince Murdaco was in Canada. Ginger Lynn was in Nevada. Um, you know, you know, the, and like Matt Mittler was in New York and, you know, Don, Cynthia, Leon, they were all in different parts of LA. So, you know, basically the way it worked was they would go to whatever studio was closest to them. And there would, we would remote link to three beep in New York. And I would be here in the vinegar syndrome building and we were all connected. We could all see the video and we could all hear each other. And, uh, sometimes I could see the actors in the booth and, uh, we did it all that way, which, you know, is one of the few things we actually could do during the pandemic. So, um, you know, it, it, it definitely slowed things down for us, but in some ways, you know, it actually helped out. So, um, difficult process, but it all worked out at the end of the day. That's amazing. I, not to, uh, there's very few things I could say about Disney that would be relevant to what you just said, but my, I have a little four-year-old and he just, we just saw, um, that movie Encanto and he's like obsessed with it. So he wants to see all the like behind the scenes and all that stuff. And the thing that was crazy about that was it was done the same way. Like the, the whole thing was shot in uh, remote and people were in Colombia or they were in Mexico or they were in New York or whatever. And like, you know, there were some scenes where there was like vocal harmonies and they had to figure out how to like get them all together. And like the pandemic just brought out some super interesting, um, I guess, techniques just kind of out of necessity that might still be used like post pandemic, right? Because if you don't have to fly to LA and get everybody in there one day for a shoot, like why have that cost, I guess, right? Yeah, well, exactly. And like, actually, my my fiance, she works at uh, a music studio here in Connecticut. And that's, that's one of the things that during the pandemic, all of a sudden, they start, they were mostly focused on music, but now they do a, a ton of voiceover. And they're working with, you know, Netflix and Disney and all these places. And um, because, you know, they need studios that are closest to the actors. And, right. uh, you know, some of the actors have moved out of the city areas. Um, you know, because of the pandemic or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's actually become a pretty big business doing all like the ADR and voiceover remotely and people have gotten really good at it. So um, I, I guess it is kind of the one thing, you know, one of the good things production wise that came out of this whole thing. So. Crazy. Um, all right. So we get to the point now where uh, I think it'd be super interesting to talk about the ending. Cause I was just trying to go through my head we covered a lot of the big questions I had around like the background to this, because I think it's so fascinating. Um, and, and by the way, just so you don't have to do it, if anybody is still with this, I, I meant to say this earlier, uh, are there any copies left on Vinegar Syndrome? Like, is it possible to still buy it there or is it all sold out? No, it's still, it's still possible. Okay. Go buy it. Like it, I think like not only just, I, I like promoting Vinegar Syndrome. I'm a subscriber. Like I, I like the company a lot. I think it's super interesting what y'all are doing for boutique distribution. Um, but even beyond that, like the stories, uh, the, the way that the passion that comes through of the supplemental, uh, material and like the behind the scenes featurette is very quite unique, I think for, uh, any movie, let alone like a genre movie, uh, and a lot of really cool, like on set or on, um, uh, what's it called on location kind of like short, uh, you know, shorts and documentaries there that, that show like where it was shot and all that kind of stuff. So I just think it's like, from, from top to bottom, it's a great release. Plus it's a cool, it looks nice on a shelf, but. Um, uh. Yeah. Well that, that the, the box, like the special edition version that there's a limited number of those and those are selling out once the limited edition is gone, they'll probably be like a standard edition, but it won't have like the, the we did 
literally like a box it comes in this box with this great artwork and um there's a booklet in there that i wrote that covers a lot of like the process and kind of is more from like my personal perspective working on the project um you won't be able to get that for very long so when that's sold out that'll be gone so you know get your copy while you can because uh i I think the the, like you said the presentation of it is is really cool and people dig it so uh, get that while you can very much so um, so I, I'm, I'm debating in my head whether we talk about the ending now or the, the big question I kind of had about what's next. Let's talk about the ending. And then what I want to, because you said there's a cool story there about how you finished it. So I definitely want to hear about that. But then I also want to hear like uh, outside of uh, Sheepskin and The Devil's Well. And I think you have another movie coming out that's called uh, Apartment 3. The Dead Girl in Apartment 3. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm curious to hear a little bit about are you going to make like your own movies or has this ignited a passion for you in re-editing and redirecting and, and sort of, are you looking for other projects in that area? But maybe before we get into that, if you could quickly or, 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 or in a long form, however you want to do it, tell the story about how you completed the movie. Cause I think that's a really cool story as well. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, let's talk about the ending. Definitely. Um, so for anybody who's seen the movie, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but um, there's, well, I kind of have to spoil it a little bit. All right. So, slight spoiler warning um there's there's an explosion at the end of the movie i'll just say that Mm -hmm. okay and um it kind of comes out of nowhere (laughs) it's it's a little surprising um it, it has to do with the helicopter and that's basically what i'll say now when i was editing again we were told that the the ending uh, to their knowledge wasn't finished and so when i started going through the footage i started seeing all the stuff with the helicopter and it's, it's pretty crazy like that the footage that they did shoot was was pretty crazy like hanging from a helicopter and all that kind of thing okay. um i didn't have very much footage to work with and you could tell that they hadn't finished editing it or um shooting it if they had i don't know what their plan for it was maybe they <laughs> maybe they had something in their mind that but it felt to me more like they were trying to kind of feel it out. And um, they were shooting near the end of December at this point. Um, I could tell from the slate, they were shooting like October, November, December, and I'm sure it was getting cold and I'm sure they weren't quite sure what to do with all of this. So I don't know if they took a break and then in this was at the end of 84. So in 85 is one 21st century distribution went bankrupt. So I'm not quite sure when that all happened, but, uh, you know, uh, I think maybe they had intended to do more, never did. Anyway, all I can say is there wasn't a lot of footage there. So for me, I had to figure out how am I going to end this thing? And uh, I used like every piece of film that I basically could um, with that helicopter to try to make something work. Um, But I needed to have an explosion to kind of cap it all off. And, uh, I had, you know, early on, I had decided that I wasn't going to shoot any new footage. Okay. We had talked about this. Like, what if there's major portions of the movie missing? Like, how are we going to handle that? Um, But as in, you know, one of the things was maybe, you know, actually shoot some stuff if we felt that it was necessary. But as I got in there and started going through the footage, I realized that we had enough to make the movie. So I really wanted to work with what was there. Um, which in and of itself was a challenge, really. I mean, there was times where if like we could go out and shoot some cutaways, it would have made my life a lot easier. Um, 
But again, we wanted to maintain the integrity of the original version as much as possible. So I made it my mission to use what was there. So aside from the actual credits, which were added, I didn't want to use any new footage um, aside from this explosion. And so um, when I had made the decision basically to end it with an explosion, well, the way that they came about was like, I, I had said before that um, we had released other 21st century distribution films. And one of them that I mentioned was the executioner part two. Yeah. And when I wasn't quite sure how I was going to end the movie, I was actually, I had the executioner part two on just like in the background one day when I was doing some work and I noticed there's a stock explosion in the movie. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if I could do something with that. And again, without, giving away too much of the ending you know i i sort of started molding it around that idea of like having this explosion and um the best part about it was it's the only piece of new footage that we added however it's from a 21st century distribution film (laughs) so so you know i kind of put myself in the the mind frame of an editor in the 80s like that's how i went through this whole process was i just i just imagined like working for whatever company 21st century whoever and they brought me a movie and they were like hey listen we need to finish this it's kind of a mess it's your job to fix it like what would an editor do back then Uh especially if the ending wasn't really there right most likely they would have gone well we have this stock explosion over here maybe i can use that for something And so that's how this all came about, which is great because we have the we have the film elements here for 21st uh, for um, Executioner Part Two, so we were able to rescan them, and then I overlaid the explosion, and uh, that's how I made it work. So, so it's the only piece of like new footage technically, but it's in the spirit of what would have been done then, and I I I think it was a creative fix to say the least. I love that. Did you ever? That reminds me of. Did you ever see Arrow's release of um, Corman Roger Corman's uh, Bloodbath? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's such a great example of what you're talking about, where they basically like he financed this film to be made in Hungary and I guess didn't like it. And so brought it back and had like two additional edits of like there were different movies from that raw footage. And he, he wound up shooting like maybe five minutes of footage on this one and maybe 10 minutes of footage on that one and pieced together like three movies <laughs> based off of like some core footage. So it feels like that kind of low budget filmmaking that was you just did what you could. Right. Like you just got it finished and. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, a lot of people have kind of, uh, compared this to Godfrey Ho's films. Um, oh, okay. if, any, if anybody's familiar with Godfrey Ho, like yeah. that's basically what he did. Um, he shot a few like ninja movies and he would use the same footage over and over again and create new movies. He would buy like unfinished movies from like Taiwan or the Philippines or whatever. And then he would cut in this ninja footage and make entirely new plots and redub them and all this kind of stuff. So um, a lot of people have compared this to that. And uh, to some people that might not be a compliment, but to me, it definitely is. So I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all need to put out a Godfrey Hill box set, by the way, while I have you on the line. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's, I, that would be awesome. Uh, it, honestly, the hardest part is his filmography. Uh, if anybody's ever tried to do a deep dive into Godfrey Ho's filmography, it's not easy. And I, there, I'm pretty sure I read an interview with him one time where he said, I'm not even sure how, how many movies I've made. Um, so because uh, if you check his filmography, it's like he'll have like 10 movies that came out in like 85, you know, and it, they're all ninja movies, but it's all just because they were recut. Yeah, and Yeah. <laughs> so funny that's an ambitious project um 
Wow, that's amazing. Well, yeah. I, anyways, I've already said it a couple of times, but the movie, it's just from beginning to end, is very fun, very entertaining. Uh, I'm really glad you put time and, and effort in to make it. So, so that leads to my next question is kind of what's next? I know you, you, you mentioned you do have that movie coming out. Um, uh, do, you, do you have the bug for making, redirecting a thing? Like, did, that, did you get the bug? Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, before uh, New York Ninja, I had it's basically how I ended up at the company was, um, you know, so we're here in Connecticut. That's where Vinegar Syndrome is. And I'm a filmmaker in Connecticut. And I knew some of the guys who worked for Vinegar Syndrome. And that's basically how I got my foot in the door. Um, but I was basically hired hoping that one day we would kind of move into original productions here. And that's one of the reasons why they brought me in and um, New York Ninja sort of kicked that off. And now we have what's called vinegar syndrome pictures, which is acquiring movies off of the film festival circuit, as long as they've been shot on film Um, and then moving into original productions. But um, after the kind of the success of New York Ninja, I'm, I'm hoping that we can find some of these other lost films that are out there that need some level of production in order to finish them. So um, I'm keeping my options open right now, but uh, you know, I, I, it's basically how you know the reason I got involved with the company is hoping to do more stuff like this. So um, whether it be an actual you know from the ground up you know, original production or whether or not it'll be like finishing another one of these movies that still kind of remains to be seen. Um, but I actually really fell in love with the process of New York Ninja. Um, I don't know if we'll ever find a movie quite like New York Ninja. Like, trust me when I say for anybody who hasn't seen it, it is unique. Um, (laughs) that's, that's the best way to describe it. So, uh, you know, but this idea of like finishing these lost films, these yeah. movies that would go unfinished unless somebody, you know, took interest in them and put in a level of production official. I, it's really interesting to me and it's really exciting. And what it allowed me to do was use all the skills that I've kind of learned over the years of like my filmmaking career. Cause you know, basically I've been doing just like low budget horror films and I learned a lot through that process. Um, a lot of it was, you know, because they were low budget, like I went in wanting to be a director, but a lot of times I would write them because I could write within the budget that I knew would work. And then I would produce them. Then I would direct them and then I would edit them. And like the editing and the writing were skills that I was like learning as I was moving forward that I didn't really realize I was learning. And those skills came in way more handy on New York Ninja than anything else. So Um, I learned a lot about myself and like, you know, my, my abilities and, you know, all those years I spent trying to fix my own (laughs) movies when there were problems, um, came in handy when trying to fix somebody else's movies. So, uh, yeah, I hope there'll be more, um, you know, there's a, there's a little kicker at the end of New York Ninja, um, a little surprise for, uh, anybody who's hasn't seen it. I won't ruin it, but alluding to maybe there'll be more down the road. And uh, if that ever happens, that would be, that'd be like the ultimate goal. Um, but, you know, that's not necessarily on the horizon right now, but if people enjoy the movie and they support it, uh, maybe that will be down the road. So. You, without getting into specifics, cause obviously that's confidential. Um, has it been a success in your eyes in terms of like, I guess commercially kind of what you wanted it to be? Yeah. I mean, so at, at, 
recording this where we are right now uh new york ninja is just doing its theatrical run Mm -hmm. so um you know the movie's only been out for a few months on blu-ray and it's selling very quickly our special editions are almost almost uh gone already and then you know there'll probably be a standard edition after that um but and now it's doing its theatrical run and it's getting to a wider audience and so um it's starting to spread and which is great so thus far yes i would i would consider it successful um how much farther that goes i'm excited to find out it's the kind of movie with the with the background to it and the way it's put together and what's on screen and the costumes of the bad guys are so outlined. It's like it's the kind of movie that plays well as a midnight movie. Like it's a, like I think it'll get that following of like the kind of thing you play in festivals and just different, you know, like event like an event type movie, right, for years to come because it just has a vibe to it. Yeah, I mean, I call it like a beer and pizza movie. So <laughs> like it's it's definitely one that you want to watch with a group of people, you know, I'm definitely one of those people that likes to watch movies alone because I don't like to be interrupted, but this is one of those movies that you have to watch with friends or, or with an audience, honestly, like seeing it in a theater full of people is the best way to see it because you will laugh, you will cheer, like, uh, you will probably find yourself more involved in the movie when there's an audience around because like, I'm, I don't want to oversell it, but like, trust me when I say it is a good time. Um, and it's unlike anything you've probably ever seen before. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I believe that. I need to see it live. I'm sure it's playing in Austin. I'm sure y'all are going to come to Austin if you're not already here, right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's scheduled for Austin at some point. So yeah, so for anybody who likes genre films, if you like movies like you know Samurai Cop or Miami Connection, something like that, where you can just have a good time, enjoy it. This is like right up your alley. And again seeing it with the crowd really is the best way to see it. We're doing actually a 35 millimeter run. So you could see it in, on like a DCP, a digital version, or you can see the 35. Um, Cause we actually struck a 35 print That's awesome. um, That's because yeah. Cause you know, it's the way the movie would have been seen in the eighties. And we wanted to give people a chance to see it that way now. And, you know, there's a big group of people that enjoy seeing these movies on 35. So um if you can see it on 35, that's my recommended way of seeing it. Uh, that's, yeah, that's awesome. There's just a quick shout out before we move on too much from Vinegar Syndrome Pictures. Um, Scary of 61st, I, that movie is awesome. Like, it's really crazy. I, I never thought I would see another movie that was like Zulowski's Possession. Mm. Um, but this woman, uh, uh, I, I don't remember her name, Dara, Dar, Dar, uh, Yeah, Dara, sorry. Anyways, I knew but she did it like that movie. Yeah. It has that same intensity and like, it's a psychological kind of movie and it's, it's great. Like I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. And I, I loved it. Yeah. Well, that's like what vinegar syndrome pictures is made for right now. Um, you know, because her movie, uh, you know, it did well at festivals, but she, you know, she shot on 16 and uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what kind of distribution it might've gotten if a company like ours wasn't around, but you know, when we saw the opportunity to release it, um, we jumped at it because to see a genre movie now shot on 16, that's like sort of this psychological kind of thriller has some, I would say, controversial moments in it. Um, You know, that's, that's right up Vinegar Syndrome's alley. I mean, (laughs) we're made for that kind of stuff. So (laughs) awesome. Well, I I hope you find more of those. And I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this, but I feel like somewhere in the something weird vaults, there's there's another New York ninja laying around. I feel like there has to be, if, if not that exact thing. I feel like 
of all the stuff that Mike and Lisa bought over the years, it feels like it should be around there somewhere if there's going to be another project like this. Yeah, um, I, I hope so. I'd love to do a horror movie next. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm a big horror fan. Uh, so if we could find an unfinished horror film, that would be that would be really fun to work on. Cool. Well, uh, the, the last question I have then, and maybe I should have asked this earlier, but just for anybody who's thinking like, man, like, you know, how does Curtis get this job? Do you, is it possible you could kind of walk through like, who was Curtis at like 14, 15 years old or whatever that age was when you kind of started getting into movies, six, I don't know, whatever. And like, and like, how did you kind of transition that into the, you know, career, making these low budget movies, getting a job at Vinegar Syndrome, just like, how did that, at, at the level of detail you're comfortable talking about that, how, how did that kind of happen for you? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it's been quite the process. Uh, you know, like most people, I think any of us that are big into movies, you know, we started at a young age, like genre movies at a young age. I, I grew up in the 80s, so I was, you know, my movie education was the uh, mom and pop video shop down the street, you know, mm -hmm. so... Uh, I grew up on a steady diet of horror and action movies. That's pretty yeah. much what I lived on. Um, you know, movies was always something I was interested in. If you look at my eighth grade yearbook, it says in there that like uh, it, we had to write like what our job would be when we got older. And I said movie producer. So hey. I've I've kind of, you know, followed that path the whole way through. Um, I will say for anybody who's listening, you know, I, I definitely doubted myself a lot. Um when I was in high school and going to college, you know, we had to kind of decide what we wanted to do for the rest of our lives at such a young age. It's yeah. kind of hard to figure that out. And, you know, I didn't think that somebody like me makes movies. You know, I didn't think that that could be my career. It, I just saw it as like, well, this is my hobby, I guess, you know? And so I, I didn't initially go to film school. Um, I ended up going to college actually for like forensics and criminal justice. So, um, but once I graduated, you know, I just, I, it, it just didn't feel right, you know, and uh, it took me a little while, but I ended up um, going back to school for film. Um, I couldn't afford to go for like a four year, you know, film program, but I found out that NYU offered film courses, like accelerated film courses for um, like basically like certificate programs. And um, I basically like left my life. I was living in DC at the time. I left my life and I moved to New York and took these film classes and I actually learned how to shoot film, you know, which is uh, not something that everybody does these days. And that's actually how I got into film. And then, you know, I, after that, I started making my own like low budget stuff, uh, short films, putting them in film festivals, you know, that whole process. And, uh, you know, it was, it was good. It's just, you know, breaking into features is difficult. So, you know, I started making my own low budget stuff and, you know, it was getting distribution and that was cool. Um, it just wasn't getting me like recognition to move on to the, like the next step. And um, I wasn't quite sure where I was going to go after that, but luckily I ended up getting this job at Vinegar Syndrome. Like all of that helped me get this job. And this is not a job that I ever expected would be in my future, you know? And here I am actually doing the stuff that I wanted to do, which is great. I'm surrounded by film. I'm surrounded by genre films, um, working on some really cool projects. And then, and then New York Ninja comes along and now here I am and I'm, I'm doing all the stuff with this film that, you know, I, I set out to do in the first place, you know, and it's a little different because it's not entirely my film. Um, 
you know, there was the whole production crew from the eighties plus, you know, uh, the people nowadays. And, you know, it's definitely a group effort putting anything together, but, um, you know, here I am and, uh, this is already starting to open doors into more projects. So I guess if I was going to give any advice, I would just say like one, you know, don't doubt yourself, stick through it and, uh, just be open, you know, cause what, what I've noticed is a lot of people in this industry, you start off thinking you're going to do one thing and then you end up doing something else, yeah. you know, and, uh, I never really saw myself as an editor, but, you know, here I am probably getting more recognition for editing than, you know, anything else. So, uh, yeah, just keep an open mind and stick to it. And, uh, you never know where this, uh, crazy life will take you. Awesome. Well, what a great place to end it. Um, look, I, I mean, you came on without really knowing much about who we were and you've been extremely accommodating and, and, and honest and open. And I, I just, I really appreciate your time. I think this is going to be one that people really enjoy listening to. Um, uh, anything that I didn't ask, you want me to ask future of, you know, future projects or future about vinegar syndrome, anything you feel you want to talk about? No, just, uh, you know, support the company. We're, like I said, we're definitely a DIY company, um, you know, buy direct from us. Um, you know, that's, that's how we stay afloat. Um, we offer, offer special editions on our website that we don't on like Amazon and all that other kind of stuff. So uh, vinegar syndrome.com support the company uh, support New York Ninja. If you want to see more projects like this, um, I would love to be a part of working on them. So, uh, right. yeah, definitely, uh, share it with your friends. Uh, let people know that's, that's all we can really ask these days. Awesome. Well, Curtis, thank you so much for your time and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch. I can't wait to see what's next. All right. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be doing this for something else down the road. So right. thank you. Yeah. All right. Of course. All right. I appreciate it.